our second week of Advent. Uh, and if you were here last week, our teaching series this year is entitled uh, Weary World Rejoices. And uh, Jeff pointed out last week that it's precisely in a weary world where the Christmas story originally took place. The first century Jewish people, they were in a successive and ongoing state of oppression and of foreign rule uh, that was governed by violence and cruelty. No prophets of God had been present in Israel. No prophecies had been given for hundreds of years. Finance struggles were intense. Political upheaval and violence were high. What has happened to all of the Old Testament promises? Where is the king from the line of David who would one day come to save Israel from their oppressors and establish an everlasting kingdom? When would God's covenant to Abraham long ago be fulfilled? The one where God said he would bless Israel and Israel would be a blessing to all the other nations. Would there ever be peace in the land again? These are just some of the questions that people would have been wrestling with for hundreds of years. I invite us to place ourselves in their situation and just ask yourself, at what point would you begin to lose hope? Maybe you're in a spot today where you are struggling to hold on to the faith. Maybe you're facing disappointments and hardships in your life. Watching the news can certainly make the future seem bleak at times. We either know of someone or we experience it ourselves. The struggles of mental health or physical ailments that can really feel oppressive. When a loved one is deconstructing their faith and they haven't reconstructed in any kind of a healthy way, it looks dark, it feels dark and heavy. When a relapse to an addiction occurs, it's so hard to believe that freedom is possible. Struggles in your marriage, finances, parenting, struggles at work, at school, all of these things can be reasons to feel like hope is beyond grasp. And sooner or later, we might find ourselves asking, what do I have to do to be healed? What do we have to do to fix the mess that we're in? In other words, in other words what do we have to do for God's kingdom to come and set things right? Jeff mentioned last week that this is a trap that we all too easily fall into, and it's the same trap that the Jewish people had fallen into. This trap is to look at the brokenness in our own lives and surroundings and to look at the evil around our world and then to turn in on ourselves and ask, what must we do to bring about the kingdom of God? And this type of mentality, it actually ends up treating God like a vending machine. Well, what do I have to put in God so that you will give me the return that I want? Now, don't get me wrong. God is not against good moral action. He's not against obedience. He actually wants, uh, wants us to participate with what he is doing. 
But as Jeff mentioned last week, human strategies alone cannot bring about God's kingdom. He is not a vending machine God. Rather, as this Advent season is reminding us and inviting us to consider, God's rescue comes because of who God is. And when we begin to grasp who God really is, like Mary, like Elizabeth, like Zechariah in today's story, we can hold on not to just wishful thinking, not just to some um, blissful ignorance kind of hope, but to a real hope-filled faith, even amidst our darkest of times. So two questions that I want us to consider this morning and hold is who is the God that we find in the Bible? Who is he really? And then secondly, why can I place my hope and my faith in this God? Our text today is Luke 1, verses 39 to 80. It's it's continuing on where we were last week. And we won't be reading through the whole text, uh, but you can follow along in your Bible or Bible app as we kind of work through it a section at a time. Um, And just as a quick recap, last week, We heard how the angel Gabriel visited both Zechariah and Mary with the news that they would miraculously receive a child. Zechariah, a faithful old priest, struggled with doubt at God's uh, God's promise to him that his wife, Elizabeth, would bear a child. After all, she was unable to conceive her whole life, and now she was long past the age of bearing children. And we need to remember, because it's easy to kind of place judgment on Zechariah and say, oh, he should have had more faith. But we need to remember that Zechariah was not a bad man. He had faithfully served the Lord his whole life. But we can actually sympathize with him a little bit. Because during his whole life, he had not seen any prophets. He had not heard any new prophecies. All he had seen was that his people were suffering. They were in poverty. They were in oppression. And they had to endure great evil. That was his experience of God's people. And so it makes sense that maybe Zechariah was struggling a little bit to hold on to God's promises. And yet... Due to his unbelief, he receives some loving discipline from God in the same way that a loving parent disciplines their child at times. And he would be unable to speak for nine months. And then we shift over to Mary, and she is kind of the counter opposite to Elizabeth. She is young, she's still a virgin, she hasn't been married yet, and she too is promised by this angel that she will bear a child. And while Mary also questions Gabriel, commentators say hers is not so much a question of doubt, so much as it is a request for greater understanding. How can this be? She asks. I'm I'm not married yet. I'm still a virgin. Gabriel answers that it will happen because the author of life itself is going to create a life in you. And in fact, your elderly relative, Elizabeth, you know, the one who could never conceive, the one who is way too old to have a baby. Yeah, that one, she's also pregnant. 
And I love how the angel closes in verse 37. For no word of God will ever fail. And Mary responds with humility and a faith that is marked by obedience. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And that's kind of where we pick up the story today. Verses 39 to 45. It says, at that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Now, notice that Mary's faith turns into action. Sometimes um, we Christians have been guilty of equating faith with just a set of doctrines that we agree with. But as important as good doctrine is and good theology is, that is not faith. Faith is a trust that moves you into action. For an example, it's easy to believe the laws of aerodynamics and agree that an airplane can fly. But faith is taking action and stepping into that airplane and placing your trust in the pilots and the design engineers that this thing will actually get airborne. Faith always expresses itself in trust that moves you to obedient action. Mary has faith that what God's messenger Gabriel has just said is true, and it moves her to action. She packs her bags and goes on a three to four day journey, commentators expect, to go visit her relative Elizabeth. She wants to go see this sign that, that the angel had promised. And when Mary arrives to greet Elizabeth, listen to how Elizabeth reacts in verse 43. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises. New Testament uh, scholar N.T. Wright, he comments, Mary's visit to Elizabeth is a wonderful human portrait of this older woman, pregnant at last after hope had gone, and the younger one, pregnant far sooner than she had expected. And that encounter might have been a moment of tension, right? Mary might have felt proud in a culture where bearing children gave a woman honor. Contrast that with Elizabeth. It would make sense for her to maybe feel resentful, right? Think about it. Elizabeth likely spent countless years praying that God would bless her with a child through her 20s, through her 30s, through her 40s. And then when menopause hit, I imagine her heart would have sunk that this gift was never granted to her despite her faithfulness to God. And here before her is this teenager, still a virgin, and God has blessed her supernaturally with being pregnant with the Savior of the world? How could she not be resentful? But her response is nothing of that sort. It is a testament to her character of humility. It shows us that she doesn't show any hint of being entitled or thinking that God owed her something. And then she blesses Mary. And this is a contrast uh, between Mary's belief and her husband's unbelief. She says, blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord would fulfill 
has come true. In response, we get Mary's famous song of praise, verses 46 to 55. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he has promised our ancestors. Mary's song is packed full of Old Testament references. And this reveals to us a little bit about Mary's devotional life. Even as a young teenager, she had clearly built a habit of being steeped in the scriptures. And a neat tie-in to our, our previous series uh, in 1 Samuel is that Mary's song actually echoes Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And there's a lot of themes going on in this song, but for today, I want to emphasize three character traits that Mary points out about who God is. And they're all kind of packed into verses 49 to 50. And then from there, she expands on it. First, she describes God as the mighty one. God is mighty in that he can do what is impossible for us to do. Right? It was humanly impossible for Elizabeth or Mary in her current state uh, to be pregnant. But God said it would be so, and it was. God is mighty because in verse 37, Gabriel says, No word of God will ever fail. And commentators uh, notice that the title Mighty One is often used in the Old Testament to describe the God who fights on behalf of his people, and delivers them. And that is exactly what God is so creatively doing through the Christmas story. Next, God is holy. We sometimes uh, reduce the word to that, or we, we reduce the meaning to the word holy. And we think of it in our culture as kind of like purity or just morally very upright. But that's not actually what that word means. That's not the full meaning of holy. To be holy is to be set apart. To be holy means to be unique and different from everything that is common. God is totally unique and different from all other gods. His mighty acts testify to the fact that God is in a league of his own. No other god can do the things that this god does. In, in a personal sense... He creates life for two women for whom it would be impossible. And in a general sense, in verses 50 to 53, if you read that, God's sovereignty lifts up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things. He brings down the proud, the evil rulers, and he sends the rich away empty. 
And just a side note there, being poor and hungry is not virtuous in and of itself. In the same way, power and money are not evil in and of themselves. But the Bible does teach us that money and power are dangerous in that they can lead a person to place their trust and dependence on wealth and power rather than on God. It can lead a person to live as though they have no need for God. And that is the danger. Whereas those who are humble and poor are generally speaking more open to recognize their need and their dependence on God. And this is what it means to fear God. When the Bible talks about those who fear God, it's not necessarily those who are terrified or scared of God. That's a bit of a misreading of that word. To fear God is to see him as mighty and holy and to recognize that our dependence is on him. That's what it means to fear God. And that's, um, and so the question is, what is God's posture towards those who fear him. That's our third character trait of God. Verse 50, God is merciful toward those who fear him from generation to generation. I want to take some uh, time to parse out that word mercy, because in English, uh, mercy, it hardly does justice to what this word actually refers to in the original Greek and um, Greek New Testament, and even more so what this word means in the Hebrew Old Testament. There's so many layers to to this word mercy in their original biblical languages. It actually denotes love, loyalty, favor, and compassion. Like the kind of compassion that a mother has towards her baby. That is the kind of strong emotion and posture that God has towards those who fear him, towards those who recognize him and depend on him. And in Hebrew, all of that is summarized, it's packed into one word. We translate it as mercy in English. In Hebrew, it's chesed. Can you all say that? Chesed. Yeah. It's a very throaty word. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. Whatever you might be going through, If you recognize God and your dependence on him, his posture towards you is like that of a mother toward a baby. It is one of favor, of deep compassion, of steadfast love towards you. That is God's mercy. That is his chesed. Moving on, when it was time for Elizabeth to give birth, Mary went home. And think about this. By now, Mary's about three months pregnant. She goes home where she's likely going to face the gossip and the slander of her community. Remember, Mary would be under a lot of social criticism in that culture. Pregnant out of wedlock? What would her community think of her? She would be ostracized, gossiped about, slandered, called names, likely thrown out to fend for herself. And yet, risking her honor and her reputation, she says to Gabriel, may it be as the Lord says. And then rather than getting tunnel vision, worrying about what are they going to think about me? What are they going to say about me? What's going to happen to me? Rather than focusing on that, she goes on to focus her thoughts 
on words of praising the God who is mighty, who is holy, who is merciful to her. Because she is so steeped in the scriptures, she can see through the record of history that she reads about in the Old Testament that God is a God who keeps his promises and can somehow know that she will be okay. When John is born, Elizabeth's relatives and neighbors, they come to celebrate with her and Zechariah. And in keeping with what was likely tradition uh, in that time and in that day, their friends wanted to name their baby. Nothing like your friends coming over and naming your baby for you, right? Uh, They were all excited and they were like, what are you going to call him? Zechariah Jr.? Because that's his father's name. That was custom. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is going to be John. At which point they all kind of rolled their eyes and were like, does she know what she's talking about? There's no one in your family named by that name. That doesn't make any sense. Clearly, Elizabeth, you know, you just gave birth. You're not thinking clearly. Let's go make signs to the mute man. Never says he was deaf, but maybe they got caught up in the moment. Making signs to to, uh, Zechariah and ask him, what do you want to call your son? And Zechariah, still mute at this time, he asked for a writing tablet. And uh, in our translation, it kind of comes across very pleasant and gentle, but it's quite harsh and blunt in, uh, in the Greek. It just says, John, that's his name. I love it. And at that very moment, Zechariah's mouth is opened and he's able to begin speaking after nine months of being mute. Pause here and ask yourself, what? Did God want to teach Zechariah in nine months of not being able to speak? What would Zechariah have been thinking about all this time? Surely he thought about the dark situation that his people were in, living under the oppressive boot of Rome. Surely he was thinking about the need for salvation. He was probably thinking about the crops and the harvest that year, but he would have also had time to reflect deeply on who God is. Literally pondering Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. And he would have witnessed his aging wife's pregnancy progress stage by stage. And he would know that God is indeed the God who fulfills his promises. N.T. Wright, he highlights Zechariah's silence as a symbol of the prophetic silence that Israel had been in for the last 400 years. And now when Zechariah believes God's promises and it moves him into action, he writes, his name is John. When When Zechariah's belief moves him into action, Suddenly, prophecy bursts forward again. And he says in verses 68 to 80, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he had said through his holy prophets of long ago, Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our our father Abraham, 
to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Commentators point out that this is a poem about God acting at last, about God finally doing what he promised to do many centuries ago. God was going to deliver them. But the Gospel of Luke is preparing you and me, the reader, to see that this deliverance is much bigger than just Israel's independence from Rome. That would happen much, much later. Rather, the salvation that would come through Jesus would be for the whole world, overthrowing the power of sin and death itself. And of course, this is the good news that the rest of the gospel is all about. I want to draw our attention just to the last section of Zechariah's song in verses 76, where he addresses now his newborn son, John. He tells him that, that, that John, he says, he will go before the Lord, preparing the way for him, giving his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. John's role was to be a forerunner for Jesus. His calling was to be a signpost that pointed people toward Christ. And this is our role today. This is every Christian's calling today. We are to be signposts that point toward Jesus, giving people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, giving them the knowledge that there is hope beyond this world, giving them the knowledge that there can be freedom from whatever it is that they are struggling with. Like Mary, our lives are to be like a song of praise that tell about the God who is mighty, the God who is holy, the God who is merciful to all who turn to him. Zechariah ends his song giving us a powerful glimpse of who this Jesus was going to be and what God's motivation is in bringing his kingdom. Verse 78, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. Did you catch that? Why does God bring his kingdom? It's because of his tender mercy. There's that word again. It's because of his chesed. In other words, because of God's compassion, because of God's steadfast love, because of his loyalty, because of his favor, because of his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises to all who fear him, he says the rising sun will come to us from heaven. This is the good news of Christmas, friends. I love Zechariah's unique name for Jesus here. He calls him the rising sun. Isn't that also a symbolic picture of God's mercy, of his chesed? Think of the morning sun, really practically. It pierces the darkness. It marks a new day. It comes every 24 hours. It is faithful. It is reliable. It is steadfast. And in the same way that we can trust that the sun will rise each morning, we can trust that God fulfills his promises. His song closes talking about Jesus 
coming to us to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. In other words, he came to give hope and to guide us into a path of peace. The Advent candle that we celebrate today, this theme of peace, I love that Jeff talked about it with the kids. Peace not only points to a time where there is no war or violence, But biblical language, again, it always has so many layers. The biblical word for peace is shalom. And it means the complete and total well-being of a person, of society, of creation, and of our relationship with God. So in conclusion, back to our original questions this morning. Who is the God that we find in the Bible? It is the mighty one the Holy One, and the Merciful One. Why are we invited to place our hope in this God? Because throughout Scripture, time and time and time again, He is the God who fulfills His promises. So this Advent season, would we join Mary and Zechariah in singing their songs of praise to God? But would we also be invited into writing our own songs of praise to God? Where has God been at work mightily in your life? Where have you experienced God as holy? That is, where have you experienced that God is totally unique to all other idols and pleasures and money and spiritual paths that the world offers? How has God shown you his chesed? Share those stories of who God is and what he has done in your life and the hope that you have. Because these stories are a source of great hope to a weary world. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are Emmanuel, God with us. We pause this morning to enter into the Christmas story and to remember that you are the God who keeps his promises. God, our world is in in need of real hope. It is in need of peace. We long to experience the, the peace that you promised, that shalom that completely transforms us into a well-being into well-being physically, mentally, spiritually, relationally. We praise you for having already fulfilled your promises to send a rescue plan 2,000 years ago through a baby born in a manger destined for the cross. It is because of Jesus, the rising sun, that we can have the forgiveness of sins and be invited into new life, and invited into communion with you, and experience this path of peace starting right now. So God, as we prepare to take communion, we also look forward to your future promise to when your people from every tribe and nation will gather for a feast that will never end. God, would we be mindful of that great coming feast as we partake in communion and fellowship at the potluck downstairs. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks, Rick.
as we turn our attention to communion